Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bowbird, and I'd like to thank Bowbird for jumping on board and supporting the show. I've known Nick and Ben, the founders, for years and seen their platform grow from this small startup in Melbourne to now being all over the world with reach into China, the UK, Europe, and the US. If you've seen other architects and interior designers getting lots of media coverage all over the place and wondered, hey, how do they do that? There's a good chance they're using Bowbird, and that's because many of the best publications in the world source their content through Bowbird, like Wallpaper, Frame, Arc Daily, and many more. It's very easy to use as well. So if you've ever had a project professionally photographed, then you've got everything you need to get started. You just upload your project and start submitting it to your favorite magazines, newspapers, and websites. So if you'd like to find out more, I have a previous episode of the podcast with the co-founder, Ben Morgan, titled Figuring Out the Architectural Media. It's episode 12. Or if you just want to use Bowbird and try it out for yourself, then head over to bowerbird.io. Joining me on the show today is Amelia Borg and Nicholas Braun from Sibling Architecture, an 18-person studio with offices in Melbourne and Sydney. In this episode, we discussed how self-initiated research projects have helped Sibling to sharpen their design process, improve their visibility, and differentiate themselves from other architects. We talked about why having a mix of small and big projects helps the practice to reach a much broader audience, attract talent, and have content to promote more regularly throughout the year. We spoke about the importance of strong branding, color, and injecting a bit of fun and personality into your marketing and social media when so many architects take themselves a bit too seriously. And finally, we spoke about how the practice is able to look and sound consistent, even with four directors and projects spanning all sectors and sizes. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Amelia and Nick from Sibling Architecture. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Sorry it's taken so long. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> That's okay. A couple of reschedules, but it's all good. Um, no, I've always been this uh, huge fan of sibling and the imagery and the graphic design and the color. So I thought maybe it would be cool to kind of start there just in terms of you guys are not the everyday architecture practice, are you, when it comes to like brand identity? Yeah, I guess it probably started when we all first came together at university quite a while ago. We were sharing a studio in the Melbourne CBD, forming very close relationships, like sibling-like relationship. I guess that's where the, the name and the brand really started um, to come from. And from that, we had a lot of fun together. And I guess that became an important part of the way that we began to express ourselves and created a point of difference from perhaps the seriousness of other um, architects in the industry. Architecture is a fairly serious profession. There's a lot of responsibility that architects take on. So I think often there is a seriousness in the profession and what we do. There just, there seems to be a lot of practices out there that I guess it just feels like sometimes there's not a lot of fun in the way of what's being projected. So we like to use colour and fun and I guess joyful elements to really start to make ourselves stand out from the darkness and seriousness that architecture can put out there. 
it's not just the profession, but architecture as a thing can be very slow and immobile. And so for us, it's a bit of a fun outlet to play with our self-image as well, because it can be such a slow thing working on a building and the branding and our self-image is something that's much um, more quick and much more sort of fun to engage with. So yeah, we started this tradition of doing a sort of family portrait every year, which we use as a way to record where the practice is at and how many staff we have and how we're growing and developing. And yeah, we like to play with our sort of aesthetic and our own self-image and we have colour themes to all of the shoots and if we get shortlisted for a project in the awards we'll often dress in the colour of the project and yeah fun things like that. It's interesting maybe to touch on your website because I think that the way that you show your team and your company and you've done something very different there so it's worth just having a quick chat about the site itself. Was there a particular concept behind the site that we have today for sibling? Was there a thinking about we're going to do something different in terms of not just show the projects in this really static sort of plain way but have more fun with it? Yeah, so our first, our very first website was actually designed and developed by a Dutch designer called um, Joel Galvez. And when we went to him and showed him all of our projects and the sort of diversity of projects, it was at the very, very early phases. And we probably had not such great documentation of all of our projects and there was a bit of a sort of hit and miss in terms of the way that we had documented things and yeah it was a bit mishmash in terms of the actual quality of the documentation of a lot of the projects. So he came up with this really great idea of having this chronologic approach to projects and having it almost as a bit of a sort of file archive and basically having this approach where you could search projects by different themes that were present within the office and that was quite a simple and really nice approach and he also came up with this approach to our logo which was about the idea that there's no I in sibling and that the sort of eyes in our logo are constantly changing and constantly evolving and there's always a sort of different version of the logo that's going around. Um, and so, yeah, that original website served us really well in those early um, days. But then, yeah, as we grew and as our projects grew and our sort of quality of um, documenting things grew as well, we did a complete sort of refresh with Ross Paxman and he came on and he really looked at those kind of original ideas that Joel had um, cemented in the early website but then was able to just transform the website into much more of a kind of interactive and immersive experience. And I think, yeah, picking up on the idea that we really like to document a lot of our projects in video and show the way that people use the space because obviously architecture isn't static. And so that was really important and having much more of a kind of immersive um, approach to the next iteration of the website was what we were going for and we had a lot of conversations around how to structure it and I think for us it's not just about the projects but about the things that we're doing outside of projects and so that's looking at a lot of the new stuff and a lot of the events and writing that we do but then also looking at yeah the kind of the studio the people the publications and just trying to have the kind of full broad spectrum of the, the practice up there yeah it's an interesting strategy for people that visit the website they'll see this but it's like projects on the left activities in the middle and news and exhibitions and research and then on the very right hand side you've got the team and the about and everything so the visitor comes to the site and they're just shown all this stuff at once it's not like the news is off in the menu and you can go and explore that if you want to if you're interested it's going no you're going to see it right now 
the second you come into this website and you're going to see video and you're going to see things moving. Did you ever think, are we giving the visitor maybe too much stuff at once or is that part of what we want to do? Like we want to have that effect of everything's being given to them the second they land on the site. Yeah, I guess as Amelia was sort of touched on, we were really hoping that it would be a really interactive experience on the website. And even though you do come in and there's a lot of information there, I guess that's very intentional that you can then start to choose how to engage with that information if you want to look at projects, news, or click further to go into a bit more uh, deeper information. So like the research that we did for New Agency and the posters that we produced for that. And I guess like if you contrast the website to something like the Instagram feed, which is a little bit more casual and a little bit more day-to-day, and showing you happenings within the office. I guess the website is intended to be this sort of more structured but still interactive experience and gives people a much broader and more in-depth insight into what we've been up to. I think when you first enter the website, it's like a really experiential sequence of different videos which helps to um, really immerse the viewer into the different sort of projects that they're snippets of. And then... There are those kind of three columns and you can expand them and kind of deep dive into either of them. But then I think once you actually click into a project, that's where, again, it becomes really focused and really full screen and it's kind of all about the the project. And I think a really nice part of the design that Ross did is to really integrate these kind of moments throughout when you're scrolling through the project that highlight text or snippets or drawings and that becomes a much more sort of full screen immersive um, experience yeah it's interesting in terms of the structure of the practice and this question i have about this strong brand identity you've got multiple founders and multiple directors in a way that small and medium practices don't do You've, you've got this really really interesting kind of leadership structure and you've described it in the past that as a practice, you pursue the individual interests and go out in different directions and people have their own specialties and passions as leaders in the practice and the whole team overall does. And the end result is that there's so many different types of projects and so many different types of clients and so many different types of everything. It's such a mix. And I see so many practices that tell me when we do a variety of things, How do we keep this consistent or holistic or how do we keep it all together? And I have this hunch that having such a strong brand with such strong color, such strong typography actually helps to keep all of that stuff together a lot more. Have you ever thought about it and felt, oh, you know what? We don't actually have that issue with worrying about is this starting to look inconsistent? Yeah, I think diversity is the key to our practice. And as you touched on, we all have diverse interests and different kind of specialties. Amelia's done an MBA. I'm a landscape architect. Timothy has an economics background. We all have different things that we bring into the practice and so do our staff as well. So yeah, this diversity is very important and the coming together of all of these um, differences of opinion, I think, are super important to the way we practice. And and definitely when we start, these questions crossed our mind. We were like, we need to, you know, these, how do we make sure there's a consistency across projects and that there's a language when you're doing a primary school versus a retail fit out versus a food and beverage versus an art gallery. These are all quite different projects. But I think where it all comes back to is that we all actually share a really strong design aesthetic and approach to design as well. And so I think 
often what I'll put on paper, what Amelia, Junyi, Timothy, all of our staff as well, there's rarely a time where we would go, oh, that's just absolutely not what we would have designed. I feel like any time design's put forward, we all seem to be engaged and on the same page with that. And I think that really helps. And, and I think you're right that the brand and the identity does help facilitate that. But I think some of our ideas of always bringing social elements and this idea of fun and, and joy into the projects is, just seems to, to come through across all of those scales. I think this comes back to that really early website that we had where there was a lot of inconsistency in the way that we were either documenting things or even some of the, the sort of early days of working out what our language was as a practice. And I think over time we've developed such a strong language, a cohesive language together. And that is, I think, what does help to tie a lot of the projects together. And we have had the discussion around you because we do do lots of different typologies. Do we lose that kind of strong language in doing so many different things? But I think where we always come back to in that discussion is that it's not really about the typology or the type of project that we're doing. It's about our approach and our sort of outlook towards a project. And that is consistent across all projects. And I think that's what, yeah, does tie it all together. I'd like to follow up on that just in terms of different projects is one thing, but different clients is a whole other thing in terms of that message. And a lot of practices really struggle with, we were doing houses and renovations and we knew who we were talking to. We had this target audience of people that were just, I wanted a better, amazing house. And now we're doing schoolwork and we're now dealing with government and it's a very different group of people. And what happens to everything that was written on our website or on our social media was kind of geared towards this person. And now we're dealing with all these other types of people. And that can become this real kind of uh, identity crisis for, for practices in terms of working out where to put that. So is the answer to that just work out a language that doesn't depend on that individual group from the very start and then just be confident with that? Or how do you unpack that? Yeah, so I think it probably goes back to the genesis of our practice and where we started and where we started working as a practice. So I think as Nick mentioned before, we all met at university and before we actually formed Sibling as a proper business, we were doing these kind of bootleg projects in gallery spaces or in festivals or just completely unsolicited projects in the street. And a lot of them were really small interventions or really small things, but they were always about bringing together people and having this very sort of social engagement with space. And so I think from that very beginning, we knew that we always really wanted to work in the public space much more than just doing, say, residential architecture. And so I think really early on working out what our kind of core values were as a practice, which were about having these really public spaces that allowed for people to come together and encouraging kind of this social interaction was super important for us. But then we found that even when we do things like housing renovations or really small private projects, we still try and bring that same core ethos or idea into the project. Yeah, I think, as Amelia mentioned, this kind of direction of the practice to really go for more public work has allowed us to yeah, create this sort of design language and design approach that we use across all of these projects. And that's where we probably differ a, a fair bit from other architecture practices in that we started in this public space as opposed to that sort of housing model. So I think we've become 
adept at, at kind of dealing with these kind of more public or commercial client bodies. And then, yeah, I think what's interesting is then using that to kind of go back into into that private residential space as well. So it's almost we've, we've kind of probably had the almost the inverse experience to some degree than other practices. Yeah, you're there going, how do we speak to these residential clients? <laughs> like, what do we have to say for them? Yeah, okay. It's interesting. I guess starting off with public and commercial projects from the very early days, what are some of the secrets, do you think? What's the secret recipe to winning that kind of work and being able to keep on doing it and being successful with it? And what is that audience looking for? Uh, I guess we made this conscious decision that we wanted to be working in the public sector. And I think probably our first um, foray into more public work actually came through some of our teaching at Monash Uni. We were through that, we were given sort of an opportunity to work on a project at Monash University and I think taking that research and some of those design ideas and then being able to apply it through a real project via the university gave us this opportunity to really engage with some of that design thinking on that sort of more commercial or governmental level and then getting in the door in that on that sort of project really then allowed us to form a relationship with that client and which led to them really liking the projects and I guess that led to more projects that we could then start to explore similar ideas. And I guess, yeah, we really used the the use of colour and I guess sort of identity through a lot of those Monash projects. And then that experience in education then led to doing quite a bit of government work with the VSPA. And so I think there's a real lineage of how we started and then how we kind of ended up in where we are now. But I guess it's through the design ideas that we applied in those projects that's and being able to speak about that to, to clients that they've really engaged with the ideas that we're, we're putting forward. And we no matter how small the project as well, we always try to create a big impact. And I think that's where colour and some of the, the graphic elements in our work can add impact. I, I feel like there's a perception that those larger institutional clients, they're not actually interested in those ideas and that impact and something different. I don't know, there's a sort of sometimes a pessimism about that space, but it, it sounds like for you, it's, it's the opposite, that they're very sincerely engaging with what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, I can sense that there is a bit of a change in a lot of those larger organisations, especially over, say, the last couple of years, where I feel like they are much more open to working with different and diverse practices and smaller and more emerging practices. And there's been a lot of different moves by different government organisations and bodies to include emerging architects on larger master plan projects. And there's definitely been that kind of move to diversify the voices that are working on larger and public projects. And I think that that's definitely had a trickle down sort of impact on some of the other government institutions and organisations that we work with, which has been great. But yeah, it's definitely been a very hard slog and it's definitely been a very hard thing to crack. Not to sound like we had this really easy run of getting um, these projects and for it all to fall into place. There were four or five years where we were banging down the doors of many different government institutions and putting in millions of tender submissions and really pushing that part of the business and not getting much back from it. So I think it is 
important that those kind of opportunities are opened up to emerging practices where you can maybe be part of a, a larger team or get that experience to help grow that part of your experience because there is a very risk adverse attitude in a lot of government organisations where they won't engage you to do something unless you can prove and show that you've done the exact same thing previously, which is obviously hard to do. Yeah. yeah. So if you were going back to the start of that five-year slog where you're putting in millions of tenders and just going through the grind to try and crack into that kind of work, do you think that approach, that kind of brute forcing would work a little bit better because of what you're saying about the culture maybe shifting? Or do you think that maybe that was potentially a flawed approach in trying to get in through those means? And I guess I'm overall interested in where you can try to tip that first domino that then leads to other projects, but how do you crack in and get that first project? Yeah, I would say that I think it's probably a combination of both of those things that you mentioned. I think it is tipping a little bit and I think there's definitely more appetite for emerging architects at the moment and it probably is a little bit easier for people starting out now to get their foot in the door than it was even 10 years ago for us. But I would also say that there still is that really strong risk aversion that exists and it is really hard to get your foot in the door. I remember that we were just putting in tenders for all of these kind of council tenders and really going for it sort of day after day and constantly getting told that our submission was amazing and everything looked great, but we just didn't have the experience and so they weren't going to go with us. And so we would always be quite keen to call the councils and actually get feedback because we wanted to know like how could we improve our submissions and what could we do to improve things and hopefully have a different outcome. And I think I had this conversation once with one of the project managers at one of the councils and I was just so exacerbated by the situation and he had pity for us I think because he could see that we were really capable but it's just such a tick box exercise that then he ended up yeah, inviting us to submit on another project and we ended up getting that. So that was having that, I guess, personal conversation and being able to, I guess, put a bit more context behind yourself and your experience definitely helps because sometimes those submissions can just be hundreds of submissions and without really having that kind of ability to back yourself and talk about your actual experience. So yeah, I would say that any opportunity that you can get to really try and talk to people is one yeah that would help in the situation yeah yeah and I think as well geography and culture probably play a little bit into it as well there's a culture in Melbourne or Victoria at the moment that larger consortiums come together and they bring on emerging practices and we've actually had the opportunity to get involved in a lot of larger projects that small practices like ourselves ordinarily wouldn't be able to get involved in and I think that's been born out of previous relationships from working in other offices etc but really starting to get opportunities on big public projects and I think we we've got a Sydney studio as well where we've um, been trying to explore similar elements there where it's a younger studio in Sydney but I guess I feel like there's more of a willingness in Victoria and Melbourne to really give emerging practices a go and I think that that's definitely been something that has benefited us in the in the last five years as well. If you like what you're hearing so far, please share this episode with colleagues you think would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app? 
Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on an upcoming episode. I'm interested in terms of creating that track record or that experience. So let's say your practice that is not in Victoria and is not working with like the universities or the city of Melbourne or something like uh, who are very, have maybe a bit less risk averse, but you're outside of Melbourne, you're outside of Victoria. And I'm interested what role research plays in this sort of self-solicited or speculative design research as potentially a starting point for that first domino of going, we are now really knowledgeable about this. Come to our exhibition. Here's our book and maybe consider us for that next project or that next tender. I'm picturing it as having this connection between business development and research. Do you see that working in practice uh, in the studio? Yeah, I think definitely. And, you know, Probably an example of where this first started was, I think it was back in 2012 or 2013 at the University of Melbourne, we were invited to be part of an alumni exhibition. We were a pretty recent practice at the time and often they were retrospectives. And so we didn't have this big back catalogue of work to present. So we decided to do it as a research topic and looking at technology and the way that that was impacting society and architecture. And through this exhibition really started to generate research and public programming to generate conversation as well. And I guess through that and putting that out there, that then led to design ideas that began to feed into several other projects, um, including a, a retail project and an office fit out where we started to blur the lines between technology and physical space. And so I guess, yeah, we, we always see it as, a, as an opportunity to get new business and hopefully that that's where it will lead to. I think, yeah, like from the very beginning of the practice, it was always really important for us to have this kind of research arm where we were able to investigate ideas outside of a sort of commercial project or outside of a direct client-led process. Like before we started the practice, both Timothy and I worked in the Netherlands for Volume magazine where we were research editors and our role there was really like taking a subject in architecture and deep diving into that and doing like loads of research about it and commissioning writers to write about it. So it was really important to the practice from the beginning from a business development point of view but just in terms of our interests and what we were wanting to do in the practice. I think that it definitely has as Nick said the different research projects that we've had have had direct influences on projects that we've had in the office whether that be that we bring some of those ideas into projects or whether it means that we actually have people approach us which has happened one or two times but I think more broadly it shows as a practice that we are about critical thinking and about looking beyond just materiality or creating a beautiful, pretty object. And I think that's probably more where it does um, speak to clients in a way where they can see that we are a practice that likes to look at all of the things that are impacting architecture, not just kind of the things directly around a specific project. Yeah. Last episode on the podcast, I had Yasmin from YSG and she was talking about this idea of building a profile or getting coverage around your work, it isn't necessarily directly about getting clients. It's that when I am in a conversation with a client, having that street cred and that sort of demonstrated ability and capability to do something 
it makes it easier for them to listen to me. <laughs> and that's really useful. So in a way, it helps to put some substance or put some proof to the claims, which just from the marketing standpoint, a lot of practices can say there's something or say there's something else. But it's like, are you actually demonstrating it? Is there any proof to that? And I think that's what you're doing. You're kind of really backing it up. And you said backing yourself as well earlier. And I think that's part of it, right? It also, because we do have those sort of self-initiated research projects, it also then helps us to develop a research approach in terms of even just how we work on projects as well. So we have that set of tools developed within the office where, you know, that just means that for every project, we do treat it a little bit like a research project and we do lots of information gathering and lots of testing. And yeah, we certainly aren't a practice where we will just sketch something that we think, you know, looks good. That's not our approach. Our approach is to really deep dive and look at lots of different um, influences and things like that. And I think that's that kind of research trajectory is a sort of thing in itself, but then it also bleeds into the way that we actually work as a practice and design as well. Is that part of when you're pitching for work potentially or doing a tender? When you describe your process differently because it has this involved research phase and we're not just saying research, dot, 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 something will happen. We do a little bit of research like some practices too. You're going actually, we've got this really practiced approach to this and this is what we do and these are the benefits and we're going to do these steps with you and it's something really different and unique for a client perspective. Do you lean into that a little bit? I'm assuming that you would, but is that what you offer as a point of difference even in those tender processes? Yeah, I think we definitely lean into that and I think having, I guess, that idea that the research that we've been producing is able to be then fed into the projects and then into this kind of built outcomes. It's a process that we can demonstrate to these new clients and show them that we've got experience applying this from the high level right down to that one-to-one scale that people are going to be using the spaces for. And so I think that really just adds to that experience of what the clients will or can experience through our service and practice. And we and it's kind of an added bonus that we can give into our process and our working methodologies and definitely trying to keep a point of difference. I think one of the main things that stands out for me about the way you publish research is that it takes the form of really beautiful graphic design, whether it's posters or exhibitions or even just any aspect of it, every touch point. But making research fun and attractive and interesting and exciting is such a masterstroke because it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to package it in a way that people go, that's a cool project. I want to learn more about that. Oh, thanks. That's a nice thing to say. I think to point to new agency, which was the largest research project that we've done as a practice, for those who don't know, the new agency is a research project that really looks at the ageing population and the way in which home ownership is linked to ageing. And yeah, it really started from us reflecting on our parents getting older and a lot of our friends' parents getting older and questions were coming up around, could my parents live in my house one day or could they stay and age in place or yeah, what would make their situation more desirable and less isolating? And ageing isn't the most <laughs> sexy topic, particularly because we really wanted to engage with a really broad audience about this topic because a lot of the questions around home ownership were quite poignant for especially younger and our generation where home ownership is quite 
a unattainable thing for a lot of people. So yeah, really trying to get people to engage with that. And we did a lot of deep diving and looking at lots of statistics and demographics changes and all of these kind of really dense things. And I guess we acknowledge from an early like stage that in order to be able to engage with a broad and young audience, we were going to have to be really careful about the way that we communicated a lot of that information. And so, yeah, we worked with an incredible graphic designer, Lloyd MST, on that. And yeah, he was really instrumental in helping us to develop the brand and the kind of identity of the exhibition and following through to everything from the different logos and the graphics and the merch, the the t-shirts we made. So yeah, kind of having an interesting sort of approach to the graphic design was about being able to appeal to a broad audience with quite dense and serious subject matter. It's so interesting. I think like there's a key element there. If you're doing research that concludes with merch, you're really doing something <laughs> like particularly well on a marketing standpoint. And that's like, it feels like such an important component because it's reaching out to a, a broad audience and it's so helpful in terms of raising the profile of the studio in a way that you would never expect. I guess that idea of how that would compare to the typical ways that you might raise your profile as an architect usually we're really reliant on getting published and you have these gaps in between projects that you know too well working on these large projects that take years to come to fruition. Do you find that the research and output around that and the smaller projects and exhibitions and stuff like that is really helpful in terms of filling some of those long gaps between those new projects? Yeah, I think we've definitely made a conscious decision as we've gotten bigger as well to make sure that we maintain this diversity of scale within the practice so that we're not only just working on these much larger projects, we always have either an exhibition design or some kind of public programming event element or research exhibition that's taking place at the same time. And I think I think you're right, maybe it wasn't intentional, but it does offer this ability for us to fill that gap between projects finishing and, and means that there is this sort of live stream of elements kind of happening through the practice that we're able to report back on. Working on those projects, like big projects are a lot of work. The research is a lot of work as well. Like I guess the it's not to underestimate that the time involved that you need to kind of apply this research. It is time consuming, but I guess the benefits of that are, as you mentioned, we're able to produce this content that goes and refines our process and really gets down to a different level of detail that perhaps just the architectural outcome can can put out there. Some studios, they tend to maybe fall into this trap because they've decided that well, our goal is these bigger projects. So why would we take on these smaller projects? But you had a comment there, Nick, that you've always been cautious to make sure that we do have that mix. So you haven't had that temptation to go, all right, anything below 10 million, that's off the cards now. Like if that walks in the door, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I think that probably comes back to some of the staff that are attracted to sibling and working for us have seen part of that lineage of our practice and attracted to that element of the business. And when you are starting to work on projects at that sort of $10 million plus scale, staff kind of on that project for a very long time and they're kind of doing the full gamut of design and documentation that's involved in all of those projects, CA as well. But I guess it gives the staff an opportunity to engage on that kind of smaller one-to-one level that exhibition design and those kinds of projects offers that you, I don't think you get that same experience on those um, 
larger projects. So I think it is about keeping as well diversity for our staff as well. We don't really have the conversations so much about scale and it's more about, I think, the right fit for us as well. So we have a huge variety of budgets and projects and it's always much more about whether or not the project aligns with our values and our interests more so than whether it's, yeah, whether it's a certain scale or budget. Yeah, some studios tend to obsess over project type and size and, and that sort of thing and they, and they don't think enough about that fit because sometimes working out what are we about, what what is our fit, some practices struggle with that. But when you know, the phone rings, the email comes in and it's the potential new client and you're having that first conversation or first couple of conversations. What are you looking for? Like what's a sibling client, maybe just a couple of factors you come across and go, okay, the fit is definitely right with this individual or this group. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of conversations around this. We've actually been trying to develop a bit more of a um, streamlined process for this conversation because, yeah, it is often something yeah. that we talk about a lot. But yeah, I guess it comes down to the values and aspirations of the client and what the project's about and what it's trying to do. But yeah, I guess it's just the outlook of the, the project and the client in terms of them supporting us and understanding what we do. And yeah understanding the approach that we would take and whether or not they would be supportive of that. You've mentioned a couple of things earlier on that were foundational, having a social element to the project, a research element as well. Are those are those kind of two elements that when you're talking about their outlook for the project or kind of their personality as a client, you're thinking, are they engaging on these levels or are there other things that maybe are coming up on, the, on that sort of fit side of things? Yeah, I think those two things are important, but also collaboration is key to our practice because we've always made decisions in a really collaborative way. We work really collaboratively in our office. So I think the approach of the client in terms of having that collaborative approach between them and us is also really key to the decision as well because, yeah, we don't really like to work completely in isolation from our client. We like to have that really collaborative relationship and we also expect that they would support that. So I think that's also key to the decision making as well. You are pretty distinctive from most other architects and from the client's standpoint, even if they had worked with other architects before, they would probably get a bit of a surprise that you're not the standard practice in so many ways. Do you feel that your potential clients need to be aware of that and accepting of that and understand that on a certain level before they approach you? Or do you find that they're coming in expecting maybe a more typical or traditional sort of experience with an architect and then you're welcoming them and in introducing them into that different approach that you you have. Yeah, I think it probably depends a little bit on the client as well. Have they gone through that process with an architect before? I guess when when they have, they probably come with slightly more preconceived notions of what that service looks like and then I think we're able to perhaps show them a slightly different way of delivering on those those processes and I think um, as we've found when we do go through that process with a lot of our clients we do tend to get uh, repeat business from these relationships with, that we build and seeing them through that process so I think then that really allows them or they enjoy that process and so they 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 like to I guess be taken on that process again I guess when it is a client who hasn't worked with an architect before we're able to guide them through that process a little bit more and, and tell them about our approach and get them on board with that from sort of the, the early phase and those early conversations. 
Yeah, that's interesting because some practices, I think, or the feedback that I get from a lot of studios is if they're not completely on board with what we do and what we offer and they're not what we kind of consider like an educated client, they're not understanding it or they don't get it, like maybe that's not the client for us. That's not the client that we're looking for. But you're painting it more as like we take, we maybe take that time. We're not going, oh, it's just not worthwhile for us to do that. You're seeing the value of that as a relationship building exercise as well. Yeah, there are some clients that come in where we're like, this is just absolutely not the right fit and that we go through that. But if we do see, as I think Amelia was mentioning before, if we see value in the project and it aligns with our values and even if they haven't been through that process before, then, yeah, we will take the time to, I guess, guide them through that. If we see that the project and the outcome for the practice and and the people coming to us is one that's beneficial, then, yeah, we'll, we'll go through that process with them. I've just got one kind of last question of something that I've been curious about in terms of how you actually divvy up the marketing and PR responsibilities and organizing graphic design and photography and all the million different things you have to do as a studio, updating the website, running the Instagram. I was looking through your list of people on the team on the website and trying to go, where's the marketing person? Where's the comms person? Where's the where's the office manager? And it made me think, well, maybe they don't have anybody running all of that independently, but it's more of a, again, a collective responsibility. Just interested in how you guys divide that stuff up and do you, does one person in your team tend to be more responsible for those things or yeah, how do you divide things up? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of evolved a little bit over time. So having so many, starting with so many directors, um, Day Dot was a challenge in many ways just because we were quite top-heavy for a long time. And that meant that because we had so many directors to begin with, we couldn't really justify bringing on more, I guess, admin or top-heavy people. So we started off in our early days, I guess, sharing a lot of those roles. And over time, they have moved around and rotated a little bit. And in the last couple of years, we have developed a bit more of a system where if someone is overseeing or the director of like business development, there's one director that's looking more at, yeah, marketing and updating the website and Instagram. And then there's one that's more looking at internal processes, resourcing, HR. Because we do have multiple directors, we are able to almost have individual directors overseeing like pillars of those different things. But yeah, as we talked about before, whenever there is opportunity to engage external graphic designers for things like the website or for working on specific projects and different collateral for different things, then we definitely work with external graphic designers. But yeah, it is all in-house. And we just recently finally got a a studio manager on board as well to help with some of those admin type things. So after 10 years, we were finally able to to take the plunge in doing that. So, yeah, but I guess it has just been a bit of a process because it's been something that we've shared between the directors and each of us overseeing different parts of the business in that way. And how often as a collective of directors do you touch base and have a monthly like marketing meeting and what's your sort of regular process? We get together pretty much weekly. (laughs) We're constantly um, together talking about it. um, But I guess we do have a structured system where we have meetings that are set aside to, I guess, business development that maybe happen once a month. We also have a like a business strategy meeting once a quarter. And so we have these regular inputs to make sure that we're covering all of those topics and seeing where we can refine those processes and, I guess, improve. 
I'm glad to hear there isn't just a marketing agency doing everything for sibling or whatever, but are there other elements that you've ever considered going, maybe we need to find somebody else that can do this? This is just too much for us. Is there anything in particular that maybe ticks that box or has mostly it just been, it's probably best when we do these things ourselves? We are sitting at about, I think we've got about 18 people in the studio at the moment. And so at that scale, we... We haven't really outsourced anything in a um, holistic way, as you're suggesting. But I mean, yeah, I think if we were to keep growing, that would definitely be something that we might have to start looking at. Yeah. But at the size that we're at at the moment, it seems pretty manageable. We've talked about some different areas that you've done or been proactive about that have contributed to you getting those formative clients that turn into relationships, that turn into repeat business and track record and all that sort of stuff. But there's also a lot of areas of your marketing that we haven't talked about or haven't had time to focus on like Instagram and other things. So I'm just curious if in terms of your overview of things, when you think about what really works in our marketing, not just from a getting clients perspective, because that's just a small part of it and not the most important part by any means, but really about putting our brand out there, getting that kind of like-minded or matching client. Is there anything else that's on the list that you go, oh, that actually has made a really, really big difference over the years? I guess one thing that we didn't really talk about too much in relationship to the um, research and in relationship to new agency, both new agency and on-off is that at the beginning of those two projects, our approach to that was to really invite experts in the field and also to hold a lot of events as part of both of those research projects. And so that really invited people into our project in a way. We had a lot of events that had 100 people at them, for example, and those events were also another way of yeah, reaching more audience and introducing more people into like who we are and the way that we think. And so just to add to that sort of idea about research, it's not necessarily just, I guess, the output that people see, but also the process of the research and inviting people into that process. And that can also have quite a big impact as well. That's interesting. Well, thank you so much, guys. You've been extremely generous with your time and answered lots of questions about sibling and your approach. And I really appreciate it. So thank you, both of you, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. That was my conversation with Amelia and Nick from Sibling Architecture. If you'd like to learn more about Sibling, you can visit siblingarchitecture.com or follow them on Instagram at sibling underscore architecture. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.